I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Here's the mainstream voice of Time magazine. This year, it said the Earth spoke like God warning Noah of the deluge. That was 25 years ago. Time sounding the wake-up call with its Planet of the Year cover story called Endangered Earth. So how can it be that today we humans are digging deeper and dirtier for the fossil fuels that endanger us? The deluge is in clear sight now when New York is paralyzed mentally, Boston physically by another one of those worst snowstorms ever, when California is panicked by drought, Central Africa by record rains. What is it we don't get? We can do confident Americans especially, conditioned to growing our way out of problems. Evidence says growth for the sake of growth, the consumer culture of dig, pump, burn, and grow is the problem. The thrust of our guest Naomi Klein's big book on global warming is pretty stark. A war for all time is underway, she says, between the creative destruction built into our global economic system and nature's own inescapable discipline of limits. Global warming marks the heat of the battle. Climate change could settle the outcome. This Changes Everything is Naomi Klein's book title and her takeaway from the rising temperatures and oceans. We see bulletins from her war all around us, even since her book started making waves last fall. 2014 declared the hottest year in all history, the end of the hottest decade. New Yorkers had no trouble believing Mayor de Blasio when he said this week's snowfall would be the heaviest of all time. He was wrong about the storm, but Boston is still staggering under the force of the storm. Greece, meanwhile, which branded democracy in ancient days, voted a majority rebellion against the rule by global bankers. And in almost the same moment, the Koch brothers, heavily invested in dirty energy like the Alberta tar sands in Canada, announced politely that they and their friends will spend close to a billion dollars in the coming presidential election cycle in a bid for control of our politics and our government. So something is up. Bill McKibben is with us, the Tom Paine of environmentalism, writer and ringleader. Also, Mindy Luber at the intersection where shrewd investors meet hard-nosed climate warriors. Naomi Klein is first up, but before the experts, the people. On Boston Common this week, they mostly smiled when we asked what they would be willing to give up to save the climate. I could live without air conditioning. We can save strawberries and tomatoes for the summertime. More heat in my house. One less car. We're actually uh, quite uh, willing to give up uh, driving a car. Yeah. We're willing to uh, drop the temperatures in the evening. We'd be willing to eat local fruits and vegetables. Also clothing probably would be willing to support the local producers. I choose to buy organic and choose to buy cruelty-free products. A lot of these things are a lot more expensive. I can see why it would be difficult for people to give up certain things. I have to feel as though it's part of a larger movement, not something that we're doing person by person. But I think it's going to have to be legislated. Hopefully it doesn't mean giving up everything, going back to the Stone Age. It's apathy, I guess. We drink, we smoke, we consume, we consume, we consume. Money, 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 money. Fear, 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 fear. Like, I know I want to garden more. like to do, like, urban communal living. I think that'd be really cool. What, what would I give up? Technology, maybe. Telephones. Yeah. The planet is more important. Naomi Klein, welcome to Open Source. We're fascinated by your book. What would you give up, Naomi? 
You know, I thought those answers were amazing. Um, I w- <laughs> it didn't leave much for, for me to, to add. Um, what would I give up? I, I mean, I, I, I love the answer that, that it really depends on what, what else other people are doing, because I don't think it is just about what we as individuals will give up. I mean, I have given up a lot of things. I've cut my flying to a tenth of what it used to be, um, and I haven't suffered for it, frankly. I mean, what I find is when I act in ways that lower my carbon emissions, generally they increase my quality of life and personal health. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I, I live in a country, I'm Canadian, where a lot of people have changed their lifestyles and bike and take transit. And, you know, I live in a city where they pick up our compost once a week. Um, you know, we've got, we're, we're doing our part as individuals. We could all be doing way more. But at the same time, my country's carbon emissions are um, 30% above what they should be under our international commitments. And that's largely because of the Alberta tar sands. So what, it, what individuals do collectively is not enough to offset what multinational fossil fuel companies are doing on a massive scale. So you we know, do need to regulate it, and we also need to go after the biggest polluters of all. That woman who, who said she didn't want to be alone in all this, she almost she could have written your book and said she wants a bottom-up movement, and she wants the government to lead. Uh, we'll come back to all that. I want your scorecard, Naomi Klein, before we... But, you know, we, if I could just add one other thing, you know, about... You know, I used to smoke. Um, I hope my mother's not listening. Um, but, you know, it, it, it helped me quit smoking when it became really hard, you know, when it was, you know, when there, when there were rules that made it really, really inconvenient. Um, and I found myself, you know, in freezing temperatures huddled with strangers and feeling kind of foolish. So I also think mm. that there are laws that make good choices easier, not just because they make it harder to do the bad things, but because they make it easier to do the right things. But you know, that feeling foolish point is important. Uh, it's a distraction here, but you know, <laughs> people dueled, you know, a crazy, crazy social habit and, until it seemed absolutely foolish. People bound feet in China. People have done all sorts of crazy things. And then one day they woke up and said, that's crazy. Let's stop it. But anyway, I want your scorecard on the events since your book landed, including, you know, the Koch brothers essentially offering to buy our democracy and, and uh, Greece saying, no way uh, with these banks. We're going we're to take it back for people. What's happening a lot is happening simultaneously. It's been a really eventful week and, and a really stark one. I mean, Greece is particularly interesting to me. Um, it, it's one of the places that I, I reported on for this book because I think it shows the connections between uh, the economic crisis playing out in people's lives, uh, the way that, um, that, that people are already being asked to make huge sacrifices in the name of abstract goals like balanced budgets, and you know, paying you know, paying the, your country's debts to Germany or whatever it is. You know, in Greece, huge sacrifices have been made. People have lost a third of their incomes. Um, but what was in, the reason why I reported from hmm. Greece for the book is because um, we hear about that. You know, we hear about pensions cut. We hear about the layoffs in the public sector. But the other thing that was that has been happening in Greece in the name of battling this economic crisis that was set off by the collapse on Wall Street in 2008 is that Greeks have been told they need to drill for oil and gas in the Aegean and Aeonian seas. Um, they've been told um, that they they need to roll back the commitments that they're 
government had previously made to renewable energy, that this was too costly. So essentially the planet was thrown under the bus in the middle of the economic crisis. Mm. So the fact that there has been this shift, um, we've heard a lot about what uh, cities has promised, the, the new Greek government has promised in terms of uh, fighting austerity. But one of the things that they also have promised is to reverse some of these anti-environmental policies that have been uh, pushed through in the name of, of austerity. So you have that on the other, on the one hand. On the other hand, you have the Koch brothers announcing that they're going to spend, as you said, um, almost a billion dollars them, uh, you know, with, with other donors in the next election cycle. Um, and you know this is just an, almost an unthinkable sum. It used to be shocking that uh, that that both political parties combined um, would spend a billion dollars in an in, in mm. an electoral cycle, and now we're talking about uh, hearing this from a single donor. No, and, it's and it's in, shocking. It, it looks like an outright purchase. Uh, and it, this is a fossil fuel company, and this is what's important to remember. I mean, this this is you know they they they, they their money comes from from fossil fuels. They're heavily invested in in the Alberta tar sands, which is why they're so interested in the Keystone XL pipeline. Um, but you know, when Char when when Charles Koch made that announcement, he he described the funding, the the, the thread that connected it all, as um, as as part of their resistance to what he described as the march of collectivism. And the Koch brothers always talk about this is this is their meta narrative. You know, they're fighting on all of these different fronts. But the meta narrative that they're fighting is the idea of collectivism, as they call it. And, you know, the argument I make in my book is that the reason why we have failed to respond to climate change um, with any kind of, of efficiency or urgency in the decades that it has been on the international agenda since our governments have been negotiating towards emission reduction, the reason why we've failed is because that war has been waged very successfully simultaneously. So we have been in the midst of facing this collective crisis at a time when a war has been successfully waged on the idea of collective action. But things are changing. I, you know, we've learned so much about the climate. But we've got to learn more about economics and about capitalism, if we can say that word. I like the premise in your book that planets don't just wear themselves out, and not even people have to wear planets out, although we are a rough species. I, I always think of the ant biologist E.O. Wilson saying, looking at the biosphere, a very thin web around the globe, and saying, take the human beings out of it, and it would be safe forever. Take the ants out, it would be doomed within months or years. Um, you say it's not just humans as humans. You say it's an economic system that has run amok here. As particularly as you can, spell out that system. And when did it, when did it go nuts? Well, I think there are a few waves of, uh, of this. You know, as I, I say, there's a, there, the, the, I guess the answer to the go nuts question was um, the, the, the late 1980s. And this is why, you know, climate change has suffered from this case of epic bad timing, that this, that this essentially collective problem that required unprecedented cooperation um, within our countries, between our countries, um, that shows how deeply interconnected we are, hit us at a time when the idea of collective action was being so actively discredited and we were being told that all we were were the sum of our individual shopping decisions. That was really bad timing mm. um, because I think that we have shown historically that we're capable of collective action, collective sacrifice. You know, we see this um, 
during wartime. We saw it at, you know, in the midst of the Great Depression. Um, we see it in post-war reconstruction moments. Um, you know, we are capable of extraordinary things as a species, as well as horrific things. Um, but uh, so, but that's not only it. I mean, it is also that we have uh, we have an attitude towards nature that that has dominated. Um, since the 1700s, which sees the earth as a machine and sees humans as the earth's mechanic. And we've been telling ourselves that we can not just dominate nature, but transcend it. And this is where I think it really comes, it's really linked to climate change in that the promise of fossil fuels from the very beginning, um, since the steam engine was commercialized in the 1700s, the promise was this will free you from the natural world. You will no longer be enslaved to you know, when the winds blow, when you know where 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 the waters run. You will you will be able to be above nature. And climate change says actually no. Now, Naomi Klein, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, before we're done, I I want to hear you know if there are economic arrangements and business practices that that are leading us over the cliff. Uh, which are the ones that could be? brought to light and and changed. Uh, Coming up, the muffled but rising people's voice in the climate crisis and the dawn of conscious conscience among the corporations. Bill McKibben and Mindy Luber up next. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden, and this is Open Source. As if there was still a choice about the warming of planet Earth and the damage it's doing to everything, including our morale. What could we do? Bill McKibben is the ever-upbeat prophet of doom for 25 years now since his breakthrough book in 1989 titled The End of Nature. More than anybody, I think, he has made the climate a global grassroots issue through the website 350.org toward the goal of getting carbon in the atmosphere back toward 350 parts per million. He was the drum major of the mass march in New York last September. Three summers earlier, he got himself arrested with many others protesting outside the White House against the Keystone XL pipeline. Never forget for a moment who has a big refinery up there in Alberta. It's the Koch brothers, okay? And they were here in town this week. They were here in town this week kind of watching over their investments, making sure that everything was under control. But everything is not under control for them. We may have turned the clock back last night, but we are turning the clock forward today into a new energy world. That was Bill McKibben in 2011. You were sounding strong, Bill. Well, (laughs) stronger than I am tonight, Christopher. I've got a cold, but I am so happy to be making the connection with you as always. Thank you, Bill. The news, of course, today is the Senate vote, which President Obama has said he will veto, to force approval of that same XL pipeline for Canadian oil running through the American breadbasket. Talk about that vote. Well, look, this is a story of um, tremendous organizing, which Naomi had a lot to do with. Uh, She was there getting arrested, too, right at the start. When we were there in 2011, I was whistling through the graveyard a little bit. The the National Journal, that big insider newspaper in D.C., had pulled their 300 D.C. energy experts, and 
91% of them said that TransCanada would have their permit for the Keystone Pipeline by the end of 2011. Hmm. They don't have it yet, and I don't think they may never get it. Um, and that's because people rose up in a way that they haven't on any environmental issue for a very long time. They understood that this was a place to draw a line in the tar sands. And not only has that 900,000 barrels of oil a day stayed in the ground, the ruckus that people started causing, started by indigenous people up in Alberta and ranchers in Nebraska, but now embraced by a whole host of people across the continent, that's been mm. enough to shelve plans for three big new mines up in Alberta. And more to the point, it's kind of kicked off what Naomi's called blockadia, this uh, uh, kind of fossil fuel resistance to pretty much every plan for a pipeline and a coal port and a new coal mine, and whether it's in Australia or Poland or fracking in New York or wherever it is, this is a whole new landscape. Bill McKibben, you, you've got me scratching my head. Who was the great cunctator in Roman history? Cunctator meaning the master of delay. So, you know, slow it down. Slow, you, you will win by, by well, waiting it out. Yeah, well, here's it could the be thing. you. Here's the thing. It's not like history is standing still while we do this, okay? Uh, delay works to our advantage because in the last two or three years, uh, the price of uh, solar panels dropped 40%. It's dropped 98% in the last 40 years. Uh, with every week that passes, the position of the fossil fuel industry grows more tenuous. But what does uh, it say that, that uh, a nice guy from Boston, uh, that's you, uh, and a few hundred thousand, maybe millions of friends around the world can actually you know, bring these wheels uh, well, to a stop? Truthfully, it's not. I mean, I mean, who knows? We're not. We haven't brought them to a stop in the sense they're still winning, but the balance is shifting. It is a combination of people rising up, and you know, uh, and a com- combined with the just overwhelming science of where we are. I mean, as Naomi's book makes so beautifully clear in its beginning, the problem for the Koch brothers in the end isn't politics. They can probably. You know, all things being equal, they probably keep winning. You know, they've got endless amounts of money, and money talks, but money doesn't beat physics in the end. Hmm. And they're in a just untenable place. They can try and prolong the fossil fuel era. They will try and prolong the fossil fuel era. Our job is to shut it down uh, uh, very quickly before it overwhelms everything around us, and that's starting to happen to me. Meantime, we're watching... We're watching President Obama as a sort of a political barometer of all this. When he was running for president, he said that the election of himself uh, would be marked in history as the moment when the when the oceans stopped rising and the earth began to heal. Then he seemed to veer uh, in the direction of the oil companies. Now he's backed off XL. Will he stop the whole thing? And what does it tell you that he's he's he, he's spinning in the wind there? Politicians, even the best of them, um, um, respond mostly to pressure. And so most of the pressure comes most of the time from people with most of the money. All things being equal, they win political fights. But now there's pressure coming from all sides. And it's what's interesting is it's coming from everywhere. So uh, last September, uh, you know, the week that Naomi's book launched, uh, we had what amounted to the greatest book launch party of all time in New York with 400,000 people out in the streets. Um, making her point. And that night, up at the Cathedral of St. John, uh, representatives of the Rockefeller family, the first family of fossil fuel, 
uh, announced that they were selling, divesting their shares in coal and oil and gas, arguing that it was both immoral and financially imprudent to be there anymore. Uh, lots of other folks are following, but we need many, many more. Divestments now become the way that people prove that they're actually serious about taking on this uh, this problem. So speak to the president in, in legacy mode here. Well, 50 years from now, uh, no one's really going to worry too much about uh, exactly how things went in Libya. Or I mean, the question that people are going to ask is, what did you do when on your watch the Arctic melted? What did you do when on your watch it turned out that the oceans were 30% more acidic than they'd been? Uh, 40 years before. I mean, that's the only question that people will care about five or ten decades hence. And so far, uh, Obama has given every possible answer to that question, from I care a lot to I really don't care at all because America is going to pass Russia and Saudi Arabia as the biggest oil producer in the planet. I think that given that degree to which his hands have been tied by Congress, in certain ways the, the keystone thing will be a a key decision uh, uh-huh. about when he has his own head, what it is he does. But uh, a mixed record, he's done better than George W. Bush. But, you know, um, I've drunk more beer than my 14-year-old niece, too. You know, <laughs> that's not really the standard here. Bill, we're talking about uh, capitalism as well as the climate. And I want to introduce Mindy Luber in our studio. She answers yes to the question, can you hold thoughts of climate disaster and investment strategy in your head at the same time. She ran the Environmental Protection Agency for New England in the Clinton administration. She now runs a network of investment managers who are focused on risks and opportunities in climate change. She also runs the Ceres Advocacy Group, which is selling sustainability to big corporations and investors both. And she writes about climate change and business for the capitalist tool, as it likes to call itself, Forbes magazine. Mindy Luber, go right to the divestment point. The Rockefeller family has bailed out of the the family industry oil. Where do you stand on divestment as a strategy, as as a choice for smart people of conscience? Sure, Christopher. Uh, divestment is one of many things we've got to be focused on. Look, we got to keep our eye on the ball. Our eye on the ball means addressing climate change in a way that makes a difference, allows us to live in a two-degree world, and allows us to get to a trillion dollars a year in investments by 2030. So how do we get there? How do we get capital markets to help government and others? Individuals alone can't solve this problem. We need a trillion dollars, not only in the United States, across the world. A trillion for? To move us from a fossil fuel economy, which we are and which is doing us in, to an economy that will build a sustainable future for our families. I've got two kids, Abe and Jesse. They're a little bit older than they used to be uh, when I dragged them around during my EPA days. But this is the first time in history we are building a world where our children are not going to have the resources, the needs, the luxuries, and I don't mean monetary luxuries, the natural resource luxuries that we've had. That is something we can't accept. So we've got to look at what do we need to do, and that is bring our fossil fuel, our carbon footprint down by an enormous amount, and how do we do that? And using the capital markets as one option. 
I'm a big believer in all strategies. I've been a lawyer. I've been an advocate. I've been a lobbyist. We've got to get to a trillion dollars a year. We've got to get out of fossil fuels. And I will say the price of oil coming down to $50 is helping an enormous amount. Right now, the, how, how does that work? Right now, the fossil fuel companies think they could sell fossil fuels forever. The demand's going up. The ma- demand isn't going up. The value isn't going up. It is no longer profitable. Bill was talking about tar sands in Alberta, an absolutely pernicious project that has unlimited carbon emissions with no way to stop them and no answers to do so. That is a project that can't go forward or a series of projects. Well, I'm not sure the oil companies can make money anymore with the price of oil at $50, given what it takes to drill and to move those things forward. That's a good thing. In addition, the fossil fuel companies right now are poised to spend $650 billion every year mining for new fossil fuels. Mm. Our job is to get that transition from the $650 billion looking for more fossil fuels to show the futility of that, the economic insanity of that, and turn it into investments You could do a lot of energy. solar heating for $650 billion. I want to get Naomi Klein back in, partly because Bill is sounding awfully hopely, hopey, changey, uh, uh, Naomi, and Mindy is sounding very friendly to the capitalists. Straighten us out. <laughs> Look, I mean, I... I, I I think that that you know I agree with Mindy that that it's going to take all of these strategies simultaneously. Um, there's no doubt that you can that you can get a good return on your investments um, investing in in technologies that are not at war with life on Earth and are part of this transition. Um, I think where things get dangerous is when you say we can leave this to the market, and that's essentially been what a large part of the environmental movement said for a long time was, okay, we're going to have cap and trade, we're going to have market-based solutions, we'll just get the right incentives in place and we'll let the market work its magic. Um, it's, it, it, first of all, that's been tried in Europe. The carbon markets are, are a disaster. They, they, the, the bubble has burst. They're a fraud magnet. And we don't have another decade to waste. If we believe our own rhetoric about the urgency of this, then we have to, uh, you know, we have to take more decisive action. So yes, part of this um, is putting the right market incentives in place and definitely taking advantage of the low, low um uh, oil price right now. But also we have to recognize that what goes down can go back up. This is temporary. Um, and we need to take advantage of the fact that it is easier to introduce a carbon tax when hmm. the price of oil is low, as long as it's a progressive uh, uh, tax that isn't going to punish people who really can't afford to pay more. Um, but but And it also means that we need to to push very hard in this moment where it is uh, not cost effective to mine in Alberta and to drill in the Arctic to get lasting bans. Um, so we need, and at the same time, if we're going to raise you know a trillion dollars a year, it, it also needs to come from things like increasing royalty rates, um, you know, taxing financial speculation. Um, so it isn't just going to be about putting the right uh, incentives in place. It's also, I mean, I think it's really important that there be a, a, a polluter pays response to this, that people feel yeah. as just. You know, you started the show by asking people, what are you willing to give up? What I found in my research is that people are willing to give up a lot if they feel 
that the overall architecture of the response is fair. So if they see that they're being asked to give something up and that the oil companies are getting off scot-free, then they're less willing to give, get, as well they should be. Um, so I think that, that, that saying right up front, this is going to be a polluter-pays framework, um, is, is part of getting us to where we need to go. You like trucks that change the, the course of things, including the effect of the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico that created a precedent effect that the polluters have to pay, that their corporations are, are liable for billions of dollars in, in penalties. What would it take to, to make... Well, that didn't coal- create the precedent. I well, mean, we've had this framework and we kind of, we lost it. I mean, this was the Superfund Act and this is, and this is a, a long-running principle that's, large, that's been eroded over time. But, yeah, but, yeah. All right, but it's become sort of popular folklore that yeah. uh, you... you, you that big a boo-boo costs you. Question Absolutely. is still, what would it take to require coal companies to, to pay a penalty for what they do to the air as BP did for what they did to the Gulf waters? Well, I mean, an interesting precedent, too, is the tobacco companies, right? And, and um, in the end, it was lawsuits that, that, that sort of tipped the balance there. Um, and ultimately, the, the, the tobacco companies had to uh, spend huge amounts of their profits paying for advertising, telling people not to smoke and to defray some of the health costs from mm. tobacco smoking. Um, and there, ha- there are some creative things happening um, in the legal arena of trying to, uh, to create some of those precedents. But I think that the movement that Bill has been talking about and that you know, we're all a part of in our own way, including the socially responsible investment piece of this, um, is creating that sort of momentum. And to bring it back to divestment, you know, which is just, you know, I've never seen a movement spread so quickly um, it's you know, within six months of, of its launch, there were you know, hundreds of campuses that had that had started uh, divestment chapters at their universities, and, and Stanford University has divested, and you know, some big universities in Europe have divested. It's about more than just moving the money away from Exxon in these cases. It's also that people are. Um, you know, using the incredible research that Bill has written about uh, so compellingly to say this isn't this is an immoral business model. And so I think that that's about more than what happens in the context of a university, because once you have a whole movement of young people saying these are immoral profits, then it also becomes moral for the state, for the government, to take a greater share of those profits to pay for this transition. And frankly, that is what the Koch brothers are so worried about. Hmm. I want to come back to the puzzle of capitalism and maybe Mindy, for starters. I mean, business people are not idiots. And you know a lot of them who know that climate risks are financial risks. The question is, how do you enforce some long-term realism about the risk? I mean, you cannot sell underwater house lots. So why do we refer to underground carbon, oil, and gas as assets when, in fact, they won't be burnable if we're going to keep the planet? How does climate risk, in other words, become part of every business analysis. Well, and that's exactly what we're trying to do. That's why at series we got the Securities and Exchange Commission to say climate risk is a financial risk that every company needs to tell their investors about. They need to disclose it. Are they doing it? Well, no. But this morning, at 10 o'clock this morning, we had a full briefing for oil analysts to talk about what the price of oil mm-hmm. means. And Shell Oil at the very same moment came out and said, Investors have been calling on us to analyze our investments in coal and stranded assets. 
Uh, and this is the first time in our life we're going to agree to do that. And we're going to do it because the investors are pressuring us. I think capital markets work logically sometimes. I'm with Naomi. There's Right now, our capital markets are driven by short-termism. It means everybody's got to show how much money they can mm -hmm. make in the shortest possible time. And investing in renewable energy and dealing with the environment doesn't always show up in the short term. It might take a little bit longer. Uh, that's pernicious. That is not a good way for capitalism to work. But while we've got that system, we've got to build on it. We've got to put a price on carbon. Carbon pollution costs us money. We've got to make sure that companies are putting that pollution in the air, are paying for putting it into the air. That's the way the system works, and that will defer them from wanting to keep polluting. Mindy Luber, Bill McKibben, Naomi Klein, stand by. We're talking about capitalism and the climate. Coming up, American dimensions of this crisis in the land of spacious skies and a deeply embedded growth culture. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source with Naomi Klein of This Changes Everything and Mindy Luber in our studio and Bill McKibben talking about what capitalism and climate are doing to each other. There are underlying problems here with us as people and maybe us as Americans in particular. Here was the late, great all-American writer Kurt Vonnegut in a short poem titled Requiem. Our friend, the actor John Davin, read it for us. The crucified planet Earth, should it find a voice and a sense of irony, might now well say for our abuse of it, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. The irony would be that we know what we are doing. When the last living thing has died on account of us, how poetical it would be if Earth could say, in a voice floating up, perhaps, from the floor of the Grand Canyon, it is done. People did not like it here. Those were the last lines in Kurt Vonnegut's last book, which was published after his death eight years ago. It was titled Man Without a Country proto-American, Indiana's own Kurt Vonnegut. Come back, everybody, to the American piece of this story from the floor of the Grand Canyon. We peg ourselves as growth nuts as Americans, living in the last haven of climate denial. Is that a fair picture? Is it true? Can it change us Americans? Naomi Klein, from a Canadian perspective. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it is true that, that uh, climate change... Uh, denial is not a global phenomenon. <laughs> um, it is highly concentrated in particular pockets of our globe and almost non-existent in most parts of it. Um, so, you know, most parts of the world, people are not are having this argument. They, they, they believe it is happening. They know it is happening. They experience it. Um, and, and they believe 97% of, of climate scientists about it. Where climate change is, um, is, is climate change denial is strongest is the United States, Australia, hmm. um, and um, it's pretty strong in Canada and on the right side of the political spectrum. Um, and I don't think that that is, um, I don't think that that is by happenstance. I think there, there's a kind of a, a, a very strong connection between uh, 
settler states, if you will. I was um, going to say. Yeah. Um, countries that have Continental strong, open lands. Open lands, the frontier ethos, right? I mean, w- countries whose national narratives, young countries with air quotes around young, um, uh, where where our national mythologies have told us that there will always be more, right? That, that this, mm. this, these infinite lands um, where Europeans came and said, "Well, we could never exhaust this place," right? Mm. Um, and and so I do think that that the, the the fact that we are hitting up against these hard natural limits is particularly difficult to absorb in countries with strong frontier mentalities um, and strong frontier mythologies, unlike in parts of Europe where they understand that things get crowded. Bill McKibben, what's your take on the American piece here? Well, I think America is going to change in quite delightful ways as we move to uh, a new uh, energy world, if we can get there. The the great thing not about renewable energy, about sun and wind, which, as I've said, is now ready to go. I mean, there were days last summer when the Germans got 80% of their power from the sun. If the Germans can do it, probably our continent can, too. Um, as we do that, we're going to move to a power system that's not only much, much cleaner, but inherently more democratic. Uh, The sun and the wind are everywhere. They're omnipresent, if diffuse. And that means that, you know, for those of us who um, inherit another American myth, I mean, I grew up in Lexington uh, uh, with the idea of a kind of self-sufficiency and smallness and uh, revolt against the big and the empire. Uh, The idea that we're going to be in control of our own destiny and not dependent on despots like the Koch, like the Koch brothers, or like Exxon and Shell, and you know, just loathsome um, 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 forces from these uh, pits where carbon energy happens to be concentrated. Uh, I, I think it's going to be okay. I think it's going to be beautiful. I think the only question is, can we get there before the climate is so ravaged that there's not much left to deal with? And and truth be told, I don't know. It's going to be a close call. I wrote <laughs> the first book about this 25 years ago, and the science has gotten steadily darker faster than we would have thought. So no guarantees, but the guarantee is that there's a hell of a fight on and the sides are being drawn up. You know, it's funny, Bill. You're from the land of Emersonian self-reliance. You remind me of the great man saying, <laughs> invent a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door. Pure Emerson. Uh, what if we fell in love with, with this um, solar technology, the miracles that we are capable of? Everybody across the political spectrum likes solar panels. It's one of the, it's one of the funniest things. People who are the most right-wing nutballs in the whole world can't <laughs> wait to put solar panels all over their roof. Um, um, the only thing that, I mean, we know that we're going there, Chris. Fifty years from now, that's what the world's going to run on. The question is, are we going to get there in the 15 years that physics allows us and have some chance of a planet that, though damaged, um, staggers on in some semblance, or are we going to go right over the cliff? And that's where the Koch brothers are trying to drag us. If they can keep this going, their current model going, another, I mean, you know, Shell announced today that they're eager to go drill in the Arctic again this summer. The Arctic's Mm. untouched. It's a big pool of carbon. They melted it, and now in the single most irresponsible gesture that probably any corporation in the history of the planet's ever made, 
they've decided that the best thing to do once they've melted the Arctic would be go to drill in it for more oil. If they get that oil up, if they dig up the tar sands, if they're able to open this giant new coal mine in Australia that they want to this year, uh, if these things happen, then we're not going to make it to that um, nice world on the other side. We're going to get stuck in the middle in a place that, if it's um, not exactly hell, will be more or less the same temperature. <laughs> I, 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 another voice comes to mind. Harold, the late Harold Hughes, senator from Iowa, a reformed drinker, truck driver, populist, very interesting guy. But he said on this growth question on the Senate floor, and I was there, growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell. I mean, According a kind of hard... Great Ed Abbey, the desert rider. Absolutely. And so how do we how do we cope with sort of the SUV, limitless, continental, wild, wide open prairie mentality well, I mean, that seems to be a very persistent thing? People don't want to give up air conditioning. They don't want to give up cars. They don't want to give give up much of anything when it comes right down to it, Naomi. I'm not. I mean, I don't think we can make those generalizations. Um, you know, we're t- I, you know, in, in some ways, I think that this is um, the greatest triumph of that Koch brother ideology um, that 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 sees all, any collective action as sinister is this idea that all we are are are, are our consumer impulses. That all we are that that we are just um, greed. And 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 you know, when you ask people what makes them feel hopeless, it is this this distorted mirror that's been held up. Um, that that we are that humans are hopeless that we're that that we're sort of monstrous and somehow not worthy of being saved and we forget so many examples of in our own lives when you know we come together in crisis you know we come together you know after earthquakes and and storms i mean we see it most in the midst of crisis uh and so i think um I think people are willing to give up as you heard from your own listeners um if if it's fair, they're particularly willing to do so. They find in many ways that their lives improve. I mean, this idea that we won't give up our cars, I mean, to talk to people, people hate their commutes. You know, I mean, it's so much of car culture makes our lives miserable. Um, and there are so many ways in which leading a, a less carbon intensive lifestyle actively improves our quality of life and the health of our bodies. And, um, you know, and these are the stories we aren't hearing. And I see this particularly among this, this new generation of activists. And, you know, just to, you know, I don't know how much time we have left, but I mean, I have to say, you know, this, this stuff gets pretty grim. Um, and, you know, when I was researching this book, it was, you know, one of the hardest, certainly the hardest book I've ever written because so much of it is so incredibly depressing. Um, but at at the end of the process, you know, it took five years. But the the last year was just exhilarating because so much was happening. There, were, the the momentum um, for positive change uh, it is incredible. The momentum is on our side, and as Bill said, it is just a question. It's it's this race against time, because you have the divestment movement spreading on hundreds and hundreds of campuses. You have the Pope coming out um, against the immorality of climate change. Um, and you have 
you know, a country like Germany now getting 20 to 25 percent of its electricity from renewables. Um, now we have this 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 oil, this this price shock happening um, with oil, which is opening up all kinds of other opportunities. Um, so, you know, it's 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 just this. It's, it's 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 a nail biter, um, but I, I, I think just giving into the despair and saying you know where we won't change, um, you know so long as there's any hope, we have to fight for that hope. And uh, Mindy, Mindy Luber, part of the question is, um, you know, should we be looking for a, a, a are, we, should, are we waiting for a, a gold rush among American corporations for the new investment world of of post fossil technology? Well, there is no gold rush, and corporations aren't necessarily going to come along on their own. We need to have the right policies and incentives in place. Uh, Chris, Christopher, you talked about uh, some of the changes to a non-fossil fuel world as it's giving up. Uh, and I do want to say, when we look at wind, when we look at solar, people like it. It creates jobs in the United States and in places where the manufacturing is, unlike anything we've seen. Solar is competitive with fossil fuel. Energy efficiency is a way to save money. Not all of this is about castor oil. Think about people who are using zip cars. They basically are saying, I don't want to own a car anymore. I use a car once in a blue moon. I don't need a big SUV. And they're borrowing cars and I'm so proud. Cars. I'm a terrible late adapter, but I, I was one of the first people to go zip car, and I love it. And that's part of our future. People are moving into the cities. They're not only going to not want two cars, they may not need one car, and that's a good thing. We are seeing positive changes. Are we moving quickly enough? I'm with Bill. That's our question. We have an urgency unlike anything we've seen, and it is our job to hasten the pace for action sooner rather than later. We've got to get off fossil fuels and onto a new and sustainable energy future, which will be better for our economy, better for jobs. It is not all about sacrifice. It may be about sacrificing for the fossil fuel companies, and I think it's time they either, as they see the price of oil dropping, start transitioning to different fuels or realize they may very well not be in business 10 years from now. I wish I could show you all a, a flyer that came into my mailbox this morning. You say we're getting better, but here's this thing advertising third home. First home isn't enough, second home, of course, but what about a third home? Among the Choose among 2,800 luxury private residences, 35 world-class resorts, where you can, as they say, vacation brilliantly. This is another persistent piece of our culture. Well, let's hope those third homes are environmentally responsible. Let's hope they use energy well. Of course, we don't need a third home. And Americans love to have more and more and more. But if they need to buy a fancy car, let them at least buy a Tesla. If they need to spend $200,000 or $150,000, uh, there are ways to even do it in a way that is not increasing our carbon footprint, but decreasing it. Naomi Klein, can we, can we make degrowth fashionable? Can we put it on a postcard, make it sound luxurious? <laughs> Well, look, I mean, I think that that flyer, uh, you know, not everybody gets those flyers, right? <laughs> and I don't, know, I don't know what neighborhood you're living in. Um, but, but the truth is, is that I think that that points to the fact that, that most people, um, you know, if we think about the things we need to do to, to transition away from fossil fuels, it's not just their lifestyle, you know, be, because the, you know, what, what, for, in terms of how they get around that might improve. It's also that, there, the, as Mindy said, there are more jobs. It's going to fight inequality. Renewable energy, as Bill said, is more democratic. Um, 
but there, so it's actually a small minority of super consumers that are indeed going to have to sacrifice. And this is why, you know, the, the argument I make in the book is that um, we will not deal with climate change unless we simultaneously deal with the crisis of inequality that we have in our economy. Um, battling climate change will build a more equal society, which is why the oligarchs of the world are the ones fighting us tooth and nail. Um, and, you know, the, it's the other side of this argument, unfortunately, um, has is not fighting hard enough for that future, which, by which I mean, you know, we need to be making common cause with the labor movement much more than we're doing so right now, fighting for those jobs um, and fighting for that future. And we need to be honest about the fact that, yeah, some people are going to lose, but it's not all of us. Most of us are going to win. And a small minority that frankly has too much is going to lose. And that's okay. They have too much already. Naomi Klein, I like that thread in your book. There's a sort of uh, humanistic, utopian reform notion that we, if we could break the growth uh, psychosis, we could be better human beings, have better communities, be better people. Well, I don't think we're all addicted to growth, you know. I mean, I think we have an economic system um, where corporations um, are addicted to a certain model of growth every quarter. Um, but I think most people don't need that level of growth in their lives. B Bill McKibben, I want to ask you, uh, have the Koch brothers overplayed their hand? I mean, that's pretty naked. That We'll be happy to buy your country and run it for you. Thanks. Well, they may have overplayed their hand, but only if the rest of us call them on it. Um, and that's why we've got to get people out in the streets um, um, over and over again. As it happens, the next opportunity for people in the East Coast of the United States is going to be when this divestment focus, I think, is going to turn to Harvard this spring. Now that the Rockefellers have sold out of fossil fuel, it's time for Harvard to do the same. And we'll need people like Mindy there leading the fight. Um, um, we've got to politically bankrupt these guys. We can't bankrupt bankrupt them, at least not in the short term. But we can take away their political power, just like people did a generation ago with apartheid. No one thought that the South African government was going to fall peacefully. But people like Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu, with the support of people all over the world, made it happen. And now Desmond Tutu has asked all of us to lead this divestment crusade against fossil fuel. He says it's the greatest humanitarian crisis we've ever faced. So pick your side. Koch brothers, Desmond Tutu. I know where I'm going. <laughs> Mindy Luber, will you be out picketing for the Harvard to divest its oil stocks? I'll be, look, first of all, I think coal stocks, let's start there, are killing themselves. I mean, the price of these companies are dropping, and people are dropping these stocks uh, every day. That is exactly the end result we need. I'll be standing with Bill McKibben every time I get the opportunity <laughs> And he'll to. be standing with Naomi Klein. Uh, and we want the same thing. Let's get this carbon footprint under control and do it now. Thank you all. Mindy Luber. Bill McKibben, Naomi Klein, whose book is called This Changes Everything. Please visit our website, radioopensource.org, and share your own climate stories. Measure your own carbon footprint with our global carbon calculator. Thank you, Max Larkin. And speaking of our website, while you're there, please join our Kickstarter campaign. We're starting our second year on WBUR, and we're asking you to play a part. We're an independent, nonprofit outfit with big plans for 2015. We depend on the generosity of our radio and our podcast listeners to make it all happen. So 
please sign in at radioopensource.org and give us a kick. Our show this week was produced by Max Larkin, Connor Gillies, with help from Pat Tomeno, George Hicks is our engineer, Mary McGrath is our executive producer, I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time on Open Source. <laughs> <laughs>